just a quick reminder, um, it's, it's easy to kind of lose track of this kind of thing, so don't forget, we no longer, for now, during COVID at least, we don't get to celebrate giving together in community by passing those baskets. Um, and so those can be a great reminder to some of us, the discipline of giving in community. And so I want to encourage you, if you've not yet been doing that this year, um, if you've kind of gotten out of the habit of that, to investing in the ministry of the local church, um, that you do that. If, if this is where you go, then do it here. If you go somewhere else, do it there. But that you're investing in the ministry of the local church. And that's not replaceable by other things. And so that's, that's a vital part of the ministry of any body of believers and a great opportunity to worship together. So if you've gotten out of that habit or you haven't checked in a while to make sure your automatic giving or whatever hasn't rolled off, just a good reminder to do that. Um, I got that reminder this week, so I thought I'd pass it along. Now, um, to recap where we've been, especially if you've not been here for the last year or so through our conversation of Daniel, we're in Daniel chapter 11. And if you remember, Daniel, the book of Daniel is a series of insights that God gives. It's a narrative story about the man Daniel, and, and it's interspersed with dreams and visions that, that slowly unpack more and more with more and more depth this prophecy about, or this series of prophecies about the future from the time of Daniel, the current time, and the future of the nation of Israel, which is Daniel's nation. And so here we have in Daniel chapter 11, we're now getting the most detailed, like in some cases almost ridiculously detailed account of the future from Daniel's perspective. The vast majority of Daniel chapter 11 that is being revealed, if you remember, Daniel was introduced to an angelic being in Daniel chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, he begins to tell Daniel about things that are to come, especially warning him about the next great, awful tragedy of the people of Israel, which is going to happen about three to 400 years later and going to continue to build towards that. So what we end up getting is this future history of the rise and fall of the Greek empire in particular, especially the way it interacts with the Jewish people. And that's where we are. It is important to recognize that a main theme that we're getting here is that there is a God who knows. There's a God who knows things. He knows the future. He knows what's coming. He has foreordained what's coming. He has determined, he has engaged with, and he knows what's coming. And it's there for a reason, each aspect of it. And so as we're looking forward into that, we have a God who knows and a God who acts. We have a God who speaks um, through his word, through what we have in his written word, and as he engages with his saints. We have a God who speaks. We have a God who knows. And that's, by the way, it's kind of one of those deals where once you accept a couple of things, like every other domino should fall pretty easily, um, as we talked about in our apologetics conference that we had a, a couple months ago, uh, I remember Chris Sherrod standing up at one point and going, saying, listen, it kind of starts with this. Is there a God and has he spoken? If, if there is and he has, then everything else kind of comes from that. Well, what, if I, well, what about what I want? Well, I mean, is there a God and has he spoken? What about what I prefer? Well, I don't know. Is there a God and has he spoken? What about what I want to do with my life? Well, I don't know. Is there a God and has he spoken? Like th that seems like that's a good question to ask in regards to anything, and we're going to run into that today. On top of that, this is a God who has spoken, and this is a God who will judge. Now, this is deeply offensive to, I mean, everybody, right? I mean, none of us like this idea. We don't like being judged. We don't think anybody should be able to judge us, right? Who are you to judge me? Some people, literally the only two words they know out of the entire Bible is don't judge, right? That's 
that they know everything they need to know about God's holy scripture because they know those two words. But the Bible says don't judge, right? Um, I mean, like four verses later, it says not to throw pearls before swine. So apparently you're allowed to decide who is swine, but don't judge, right? So anyway, this is a, this quick picture. We are offended by the idea that anybody would place themselves in a position to judge us. In fact, I'm convinced that when most people say that they don't like, you know what, I just don't like organized religion. One, I'll, I'll, wait, that's a joke we've told for years here. Like, if you don't know organized religion, we're the perfect church for you because we're not very religious and we're honestly not very organized either. And so that's, that's, that's true. But, the, but listen, they all have organization and religion in their lives. What they mean is either, and sometimes both, I've been hurt or offended in the name of organized religion. Sometimes that's because they're offended and the organized religion wasn't wrong. Now, sometimes it's because the organized religion was wrong because... I mean, have you met any Christians? Like, we're pretty awful people sometimes. Get us together in packs and groups, it can get ugly. Yes? I mean, I've worked in churches. Many of my friends are Christians. I don't know about you guys. But this is, it can be a problem at times. And so sure enough, they've been hurt, sometimes legitimately. There's whole areas of counseling. There's whole areas of Christian counseling. Christian therapists who do nothing but help people with church hurt. It's, it's that common. We experience it. And again, I've worked in like seven churches. I've experienced it. I've been on the receiving end of the immaturity of people claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ and to represent him. Sometimes it turns out later I was the one who was immature, and I needed the confrontation that they brought, and I wasn't prepared to hear it. Sometimes it turns out they were, and they had no business saying what they said or doing what they did. The good news is either they represent God or they don't, and if they do, I need to listen because there's a God and he's spoken, and if they don't, I'm able to ignore them because... There is a God, and He has spoken. Now, we don't like this idea of being judged, one, because we don't like the idea of someone telling us we were wrong. We don't like any of that. We want our preferences. We want our opinions to matter more. We want whatever. And so the truth is, I think very often when people say, well, I just don't like organized religion, what they mean is, I don't like the idea that there's someone who has spiritual authority over me. And they don't mean organized religion. They mean God. They don't like the idea that there is a God who would have spiritual authority over them because no one should have a spiritual authority over me. I'm radically autonomous now. Now we're radically autonomous about every aspect of our own identity, much less radically autonomous about our spirituality. And so instead, them saying there's a God and God has this opinion over us. In fact, one of the most, I have a lot of theology in my head built around this idea that my understanding of the gospel, we see in Revelation 5. Um, y'all don't have this verse, so don't worry about it. That's it. But in Revelation 5, um, we just sang, by the way, about Revelation 5, whether you know you did or not. There's this beautiful picture in Revelation 5 when there's a scroll, and the scroll is the scroll of the judgment of the race of mankind. The race of humanity has now been, all of the judgment has been written on a scroll, a massive scroll, and it's been sealed by God. In fact, there's several seals on it. And in, in, in Revelation chapter 5, we get this coming forward. God the Father has this, this scroll and the question is asked, who is worthy to open this scroll? Who's worthy to open the scroll to judge the race of humanity? And they go around. Anybody? Anybody? All of uh, the history of human race. Anybody out there? Mary, the mother of Jesus, are you? Are you appropriate to open the scroll to race? She'll be like, she will say, absolutely not. Anybody else? Is there any, Daniel, you were a good guy. Would you like to open that? No, sir. No, no, no. I'm not fit for that. We may each get the opportunity. The scroll may be offered each. How about you? Do you think you're ready to open the scroll of the judgment again? I was like, I don't want my page opened, much less all of the race of mankind open. 
And John, the Apostle John begins to weep. God the Father himself does not open the scroll. Even God the Father is looking for someone else to open the scroll. And I believe it's because God the Father has declared it. That Would it be just for God the Father who's never experienced life as a human, who's never been tempted by sin, who's never faced tribulation or trials, would it make sense for him to open the scroll to judge the race of mankind who has? Our lives are filled with this. I think even he thinks that would be unjust. So he's looking around. And John begins to weep and cry. And he's like, there's no one out there. No one can justly judge. And, and there's an angel. And I think the angel, to summarize what the angel says, is like, it's, it's a, we all know who's going to open the scroll, John. It's okay. Like, this is, this is, all, this is all for sure. Like, we, no, no, no. We, we know who it's going to be. It's, we're good. And then this little slain lamb is going to come forward who has experienced life as a man, who experienced every temptation that we've faced and without sinning and who is God himself, the divine authority, the power, the understanding. Think about the end of Job. When Job gets asked these questions, are you there? Can you judge? Can you judge me? Can you judge what I did? Can you judge these different things? Really? Were you there when I hung the stars? Were you there when I started the snow? Can you even hook a crocodile? No? These are easy things. So no, you can't judge. But understand, every one of those questions Jesus Christ could answer, yes. Were you there at the beginning? Yes. Can you spin stars in space? Done that. Can you, do you know where the snow comes from? Absolutely. Can you look at Leviathan? No problem. Can you judge? Yes, I can. I've experienced all of this. My theology largely is built on the idea that God sent His Son to be a representative of us so He could judge us justly. This is part of who we are. This is part of what we get. We look, remember we looked at the book of John when Jesus Christ calls, calls God, God and Father? We get to call God Father because Jesus came. And Jesus gets to call God, God, because he became one of us. It's a cool picture. This is what we're jumping into. This judgment theme is going to show up over the next few weeks from here, because it's going to be all through Daniel, and the passage is connected to it. As one pastor I looked at, uh, was listening to this week about Daniel chapter 12, he said, there are two places, and only two places and times, where sin can be paid for. There's only two places and only two times in all of human history where sin can be paid for. One is the cross, and the second one is hell. Which, where do you want your sins paid for? You decide. Pretty good, isn't it? I'm like, that's simple. I like that. You choose. You can have it paid for at the cross, or you can pay for it in hell. Here we are. Now, as we get prepared for those themes, let's understand we're starting, we're still at the story of this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. We've met him over and over again. He's kind of the villain um, in many ways of the book of Daniel, and he's worth it. He's a, he's a powerful, overbearing, unkind, cruel, wicked person. Antiochus now is in charge of the Greek empire. He's in charge of the Seleucid empire, which is the most powerful wing of the Greek empire. Remember, all of this is going to happen several hundred years after Daniel is writing this. Antiochus, once established, begins to systematically sweep away all the competitors for the crown. All the other leaders, including those he had agreements with, those he had treaties with, those he had covenants with, even those who had fought alongside him in the past, he turned on them like a snake, began to wipe them out, remove them from power. This was men, women, and children. Anyone who he thought could maybe restrict his power, he broke them. Verse 22 of chapter 11, Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant, 
From the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the province, and he will do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, there's discussion over what the phrase, the Prince of the Covenant, references. It may be one of the many, many different princes and kingdoms that he had covenants with that then he broke, because he had a nasty habit of it. Um, But many people think this is a reference to the covenant, the covenant between God and Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham that he would be their God and they would be his people. That may be this one, the covenant that says the people of Israel will be a holy people, a royal nation under God, a people belonging to him especially. And that that may be what this is about, because we know at about this time, Antiochus, remember Antiochus is deeply indebted to the Roman Empire. This has happened under his father. In modern day, billions and billions of dollars was owed to the Romans just to keep them from invading And so he's paying this out, and he doesn't have enough money, and he's constantly trying to raise taxes and find money to pay to the Romans. So anytime there's an opportunity to get money, Antiochus Epiphanes takes it. Probably would have anyway, but now he's really stuck. So one is, he fires the high priest. Now already, as as a good Jewish audience, you should be offended by that. Who does the Greek Seleucid king think he is to fire the high priest? Well, who he is, is he's in charge of the land of Judea. Everyone's afraid of him. And sadly, I would love for us to have this picture, but I think we do have this picture of the people of Israel as being this holy, righteous people who never give in to anything. But the truth was, probably by this time, the majority of the Jewish people were following Greek gods. Certainly the majority had joined the Hellenistic life, all the good things that came with being a good Greek. And so there were Greek statues and Greek idols being set up all over the land of Judea. In the northern regions, they were more rigidly holding to the Mosaic law, but especially in the cities and the hill country like Jerusalem, (coughs) they were more and more beginning to do this. So it's not a big surprise that Antiochus Epiphanes could just fire the high priest. So he hired a new one, and this one was based on how much money the high priest could bribe Antiochus Epiphanes with. From this time until the Maccabees, and then after the Maccabees until the destruction of Jerusalem, essentially, as one of my Jewish guides said in Israel, that the high priesthood, the priesthood had become the mafia. It was all about power and money, illicit activities, all of that. So there was nothing honorable about these people. So so this guy who can now bribe Antiochus Epiphanes the most, he's the new high priest. Well, he's no more paid Antiochus Epiphanes to be the high priest than Antiochus fires him and selects yet another one who can bribe him with even more. Where the second one gets the money to bribe Antiochus is by selling the holy relics out of the temple itself. Now, even a highly Greek, now Jewish people, they're offended by this. This is not okay. So if you want to go back, we looked at, we, we really unpacked this sometime around October 11th. So if you really want to go back October 4th, October 11th, if you want to go back and listen to those um, or watch those, <coughs> we really unpacked the story of the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes and his running into the Maccabees. Um, we're not going to spend much time there today. I'll touch on it, but just know that that's what's going on. So understand what we see is that once again, liars, the deceitful, the violent, and the wicked may gain prominence in this world. 
at least for a time. Sometimes, though it's rare, they do it for a lifetime. Usually it comes out. Usually it gets revealed. Usually at some some time during their lifetime they pay for it. But not always. And in an unjust, broken, fallen world, and the more unjust and broken and fallen a culture is, the more likely someone will be able to go their whole life being a deceitful, wicked liar and be rewarded for it. It's part of the difficulty of being a Christian is that there's this just God and yet we live in this unjust world because we live in an unjust culture. And when we face that, it's hard for us. It triggers us. We're not happy about it. And sometimes we find ourselves asking like all people did all through Scripture, God, where are you? Why haven't you stepped in yet? I'm going to talk more about this in just a second, an example of this. But once again, the message of judgment comes forward. No one goes through eternity keeping that hidden. Everyone pays in the end, or has someone pay for them. Matthew 16, 26 and 27, one of the reasons I am a Christian and trust Scripture is because it does not sugarcoat this truth. It doesn't sugarcoat the fact that sometimes the evil get ahead, and sometimes good people suffer, and it doesn't make sense to us. Many other religions offer an easy, oh, A always leads to B kind of answer, but all of us look at our lives and it doesn't work that way. Matthew 16, 26, 27, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I think this, by the way, this, these two verses are some of the most chilling that Jesus ever speaks. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We've, we've made this into a comic book by having the devil come and have someone sign a piece of paper with somebody. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Maybe that happens. I don't know. What he's talking about here is people who build their entire lives on something other than him, and they trade their soul for it. As long as I can get what I want out of this life, I don't care what happens in the next one. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Each person. This is how this works. Now what's wild is the king of the south... So we're talking about the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes. The king of the south was just the same kind of person. These two kingdoms continue to be at each other's trainers, but neither one of them is wise enough to learn. This time Antiochus invades all the way to the Egyptian capital, but he's forced to stop there. It's going to unpack that over the next few sections when, as one historian says, Rome told him to. Rome sent out a fleet for no other reason than to remind Antiochus Epiphanes, we can stop you whenever we want. So then they told him to stop, and he did. Here's how the angelic being describes all this to Daniel. Verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plots shall be devised against him, and even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be the time appointed. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He'll work his will and return to his own land. Many commentators agree that this phrase, holy covenant, turning his heart against the holy covenant, is the nod that Antiochus' heart is now set against Israel. Maybe this is an unholy influence, a demonic influence that now sets Antiochus Epiphanes at a new level against Israel, unlike anyone before has been. This is a reference to the fact that the Israelites were God's covenant people. God had chosen them through Abraham. 
At some point in God's plan, it seems that he had delegated authority over many of the kingdoms of the world to his divine counsel, but he had chosen Israel as his own to rule directly. He's going to rule Israel directly to show, he's going to show the rest of creation, the rest of mankind, what happens when a people follow his rules, live by his laws, and receive his blessings as a result. That's what's going to happen. So everybody's going to be running around, lost, confused, making up the best stuff they can. Meanwhile, this one people is they're going to maintain their their position and and identity as a people, which has happened, because they're going to follow his, his understandings and his laws and his celebrations and his festivals, which is exactly why that has become the case. The problem for them that they face is him choosing them is unconditional, but him blessing them is conditional in the covenant. Obey me and be blessed. Disobey me and be disciplined. Someday the net of this covenant is going to be expanded. And it's going to include those who are his. Who are his is going to be expanded. That net's going to be expanded. So I want to unpack, take a moment and just unpack this idea of this holy covenant. Because I think it can be confusing to us as Christians. Partially because it's confusing. I think that's realistic. Anytime we have a theological conversation... So a group of us were, were hanging out at, uh, at Ken Hodges last night, and we were discussing some theologically deep topics. And, and one of the things that, that we laid out there in advance was to say this. Listen, everybody, just know, anytime we talk theology, we don't know what we're talking about. Okay, So we're, we just don't. I mean, it's, it's, at best, we're not going to have a complete understanding. It doesn't mean we're not right about things. It means we're never going to have a complete understanding of any of these topics because they're bigger than we are. We can have great understanding. We can know things that are true and stand by them, and they can be defended, and they withstand whatever pressure they face. But, but no, there's always going to be more to learn. There's always going to be deeper to go. Further up and further in never ends when you're dealing with an infinite, eternal God. There's always going to be more. So that being said, anytime we discuss something even like this, what is the role of this covenant, understand no one has a complete picture. There's some different ways of looking at it, and there are certain things that we do no. But anytime you're in a theological conversation, please do so humbly. It's not befitting of a Christian, of all people, to come at theological conversations with arrogance. What that would imply is, even if you're right, you don't understand what you're arguing about. Because if you did, it would humble you, not make you arrogant. Being right would humble you more than anything else would. So let's unpack this for a minute. Look in Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Again, this is Jesus teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What would have been most shocking to his Jewish audience would have been the phrase, gathered fish of every kind. Now, their understanding of heaven and hell and judgment might have been a little loose, but they would have gone like, what does he mean every kind? Like people from Galilee and people from Judea? But here, clearly, Jesus is is beginning to broaden their minds into the understanding that there are sheep that you know nothing about that are mine. I have whole other flocks that you are totally unaware of. And Jesus is beginning to teach this to them in a way they would understand. Like, no, 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 we're, we're God's people, right? And Jesus is saying, the net's going to get bigger than that, son. It's going to continue to get bigger than that. What's going to matter isn't going to be your ethnicity, but the level of evil you're defined by. Isn't it fascinating that we specifically, 
We specifically have the Apostle Paul later say, when it comes to the kingdom, which one of these matters? Ethnicity? Is it Greek or Jew? Is that what matters? There is no Greek and Jew in his kingdom. It's irrelevant. How about male or female? Is that what matters? No. It doesn't matter. There is no, there's no differential in his kingdom when it comes to sex. <coughs> okay, well, how about, how about socioeconomic status? Free or slave? No, not that either. I don't know if Paul had a vision into our day and age, but I want you to notice that the exact same things that the world right now is trying to tell us need to be the, the main identifier of our identity. The gospel and the kingdom says they are irrelevant. They are irrelevant to the gospel, and in the kingdom, they are irrelevant. The fact that we've placed relevance on them is a sign of our brokenness. Now, are they good descriptors? Sure. Do they matter? Of course they matter. Of course they matter. They're part of who we are, and we engage with those conversations. But are they what define us? Not as Christians, they're not. We are members of the kingdom. That's our defining trait. It's not these other things. Again, Good to know, good to understand. It helps us love each other better when we understand this stuff, and we need to. But as a definer, no, sir. That's not where it goes. The definer is the person of Jesus Christ in us. It boggles my mind. And yet when we talk about this, we get into these conversations. You know um, Charlie Heaton? Uh, years ago, I heard him in a Bible study. You've met. Uh, that, uh, that we were... Uh, he, he, at one point, he referenced, he goes, you know, I think, I think every time we talk about deep theological topics like this... God, we must look to God like three-year-olds talking about sex. <laughs> they were going like, well, I mean, you're, yeah, well, I mean, let's just move along, right? So I think there's probably something to that. Let's, let's keep looking at this. So second, First Peter 2 says this, you are a chosen race, starting verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Remember, Peter is speaking to Gentiles here. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's always going to be controversy about this, exactly how this relationship between God and his people and who his people are and what exactly that means. There's always going to be controversy about that until God settles it for us and explains it and then we'll realize how, all, how wrong we all were. But, but any, any, my opinion is any theory on this that takes the people of Israel and makes them insignificant or meaningless to the future of the gospel is missing something. I think there's got to be some role for the, people of, for the Hebrew people. After all, it's in Jeremiah 31, 31 that we get this concept. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Still, the people of Israel there have a significance to the fulfillment of this promised new covenant. At the same time, any theory that would make the church ultimately irrelevant cannot be accurate either. You can't take the church out of the picture. There's a sense in which we represent the application of this covenant. It says in Hebrews 9, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is what we're talking about with, there's two places where sin can be paid for. One of them is when the death occurred to remove the transgressions committed under that covenant. In Romans 11, we see the Apostle Paul examine this and try to unpack it. I love watching the Apostle Paul try to unpack something that I think he gets some level, at some level intuitively and having studied, gone, you know, gone to seminary in the third heaven, that he really gets this. But when he tries to unpack it for us, it's almost funny to hear him try to put it in the language. I don't know if you have with Paul as well at times. My favorite, of course, when he talks about why, you do, though we are new creations in Christ, we still sin. You see that in Romans 6 and 7. He's like, well, this, it's, well it's, this has changed, but, you, but this is still the place, but this has changed. But it's still this. From that, it becomes that. And so you're like, well, which is it? Yes, absolutely. And so here we have, once again, at the end of this conversation, I think it's important that we look at this. At the end of the Apostle Paul himself trying to unpack all through Romans chapter 11 exactly what the role of Israel is in the new covenant as a nation and the role of the church in this new covenant as a people group, as a part of the kingdom, he says this in Romans eleven thirty three: Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, I don't think this just means how confusing he is. I think it is, it's not his obligation to make us understand it. It's certainly not his obligation to be scrutinized by us. He doesn't answer to us for the way he works these things out. Our lack of understanding is a problem of our ignorance and limitations, not his plan, not his ways. It is fascinating to me how often we do that, how often we think God owes us an explanation for things when we have very clearly here, don't scrutinize God's ways. That doesn't mean don't look at him. I don't think it means don't examine him because we can learn all kinds of things about who he is. It means don't put him in a position to have to answer to you for it. I think that's what's going on here. The relationship of the church to Israel, what I do know is the new covenant that Christians partake in is because of the shed blood of Jesus. We try to remember this every time we take communion. Whether it's as a whole body, every Sunday morning at about 8.40 over here, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 22. When he took bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's fascinating that it is the old covenant. This is during Passover. It isn't the old covenant is insignificant and ceases to exist. It's that the new covenant has now fulfilled the old covenant and is bringing the old covenant into the new. It's a fulfillment. I've described it this way, I think. There's probably holes in this, but I've described it this way. It would be inappropriate for me to describe, to introduce Ginger as my girlfriend. Although I think I did that a few times after we were engaged. Any of you guys ever done that? Let me tell you, there's no faster correction, right? This is Ginger, my girlfriend, fiance. Fiance. I feel, right? <clears throat> there's no, but it would be inappropriate. Why? I mean, she, she was my girlfriend. I, how about fiance? If I introduced her now, it'd be really confusing. If I was like, this is Ginger, my fiance. You'd be, um, we've got some conversations to have, right? We, we need to talk about some stuff. Is it because that didn't matter? Is it because it isn't true? No, it's, it matters and it's true. It's just fulfilled. The covenant of fiancé ship is fulfilled in the wedding. It's not that it goes away. It's not that it has no significance. It's just now it's outdated. It's, it's no longer. 
And so it's not, it's not that, I think that's a way of understanding the role of this old covenant and this new covenant is to say, did it go away? No. Was it insignificant? No. It's just been fulfilled in a grander covenant, in this case, the covenant of marriage. Anyway, that's, I think that at least works for me. Praise God, we were nobodies. Here's what I know. We were orphans. Now, because this Jewish rabbi, the son of God, the king, the friend, the groom, shed his blood, were invited freely to be adopted into the royal family of God. That is the fulfillment of this covenant. Covenants, the really good ones, always require payment, and the most significant seal is always made in blood, and that's what Jesus did. He paid then. He made this covenant with us and sealed it with his own blood. Now, how about the original covenant holders? What is the angelic being? When we talk about the people of Israel being his covenant holders, that's what we mean. This is when Antiochus Epiphanes exits Egypt and heads back to Jerusalem. We unpack this in detail, like I said before. The leaders of Jerusalem are broken and divided. Not just the government, but now there's two parties backing two different high priests. And neither of them can give two cents for the worship of Yahweh. And in fact, one of them did sell off the sacred items for somewhat more than two cents. They hear a rumor that Antiochus had died in Egypt, and therefore they declare themselves independent of Greek rule. Unfortunately for them, he had not died. Here's how an angel warned of this. Verse 29, At the time appointed he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be his time as it was before for ships of Kittim. It's a reference to Rome. Shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. A horrifying thing. An evil, wicked, dirty, filthy abomination that causes the, just the disheartening of the whole people. An abomination that makes worthless and desolate. As we discussed in the past, we know that his armies came and slaughtered the Jewish population According to Josephus, at least 40,000 Jews killed um, in this. When they took over the Temple Mount, they set up an idol in the temple. They ended Jewish religious practices, slaughtered a pig on the altar in sacrifice to the gods, probably specifically Zeus. Then the instruction was sent out to all the people of Israel to cease all Jewish practices, to cease worshiping Yahweh, and instead to worship Greek gods. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this for years, I wondered... <clears throat> so you remember, you remember the old idea that, that high priests, they go once a year into the Holy of Holies, and they're, gonna go, they're just only allowed to do that once a year, otherwise no one goes in there. And so you, they go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but it was such a, a fragile, tenuous, scary type of thing to do, this, this extraordinary focusing presence of God in the Holy of Holies, that they would tie a rope around their leg, allegedly, according to legend, they would tie a rope around their leg so that if they got in there and offended God and he struck them dead, they wouldn't have to leave their body in there for a year because no one else could go in. So they could drag the dead body back out. That's what they would do to make sure that, just in case he messed something up. There's still Jews today, I've talked with them, who won't go onto the Temple Mount even when they're allowed because they're nervous about accidentally walking through the space that would have been the Holy of Holies thousands, a couple thousand years ago. They're afraid to walk through that accidentally, which is interesting to me. I mean, we all, <clears throat> I've probably by now walked through it, wherever that space was, unless it's inside the... Uh, the, the monument, the Muslim monument there, maybe that's where it is, but <clears throat> wherever it is, it's, it's hard to know exactly, but they take it that seriously. Now, here's, here's the issue then. Well, then why didn't Antiochus Epiphanes get struck dead the minute that he walked in there? 
Why, when he came in there and set up a, <clears throat> a t- an idol to Zeus, why didn't he get fall down dead? Why didn't God strike him down? I mean, I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know what happens when you offend God in his temple, especially the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's good theology. So <clears throat> he should have shut his eyes. Maybe that's what he did. The, the whole, that whole concept, why didn't that happen? I, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think. And, I, and there are lots of different views on this, but let me tell you what I think. God is all present. He's omnipresent. He's every, everywhere that is, God is. In the entire universe, if there is an is, he's there. And so what we have is, of course, God is in the holy temple. God is in the holy of holies. But there is a special expression of his identity in his power in the holy of holies that was there for a reason, to help them learn and help them understand who he was. Just kind of like when Moses, when Moses wants to see God, this is Moses who, quote, talked face to face with God. Well, clearly that's a different expression of God's presence than when he wanted to see God and God hid him so that he could pass by him without utterly destroying him. And then he told Moses when to turn around just to see where God had recently been in a special expression of his presence, and it changed Moses' countenance. So in the same way, obviously God is in all places. When when Moses turned around, God is omnipresent. He was there. But there was a special expression that had just passed by that God was giving Moses to experience. Does this make sense? I believe that what had happened is that special expression had left the temple long ago. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision. And in this vision, God loads up his chariot. I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's long and really strange. Um, This is the wheels within wheels, and there's cherubim, and there's weird creatures, and there's all kinds of stuff. But clearly, the summary of what's happening is God is packing up, and he's moving out. He takes a big chariot, he packs up all his stuff, he gets on the chariot with all of these angels and all of these beings, and they depart the temple. Now, it's a vision. Exactly when did it happen? Had it already happened before Ezekiel was given a picture of it? Did it happen later? No, no. But I believe, especially at least by the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, this had happened. God's special presence had left. At some point, Yahweh had left the building. Now His Spirit dwells with us. We are His temple. I don't know about you, but I don't know how to wrap my brain around the idea that we are His temple. As a, again, as a good Jewish audience, do I think of my soul, heart, person as a place where the Holy of Holies is? Am I as, am I as sensitive to that concept? Do I treat that as, as sacred, as, as special? 1 Corinthians 6 points out that all sexual sin are a sin against our own bodies. And our bodies are his temples. Do we do a good job of making no provision for the flesh? Of denying the temptation for sexual sin? Or do we bring that into the holy of holies with God himself? This special experience, this special presence. The Apostle Paul is clearly trying to make that picture. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to even wrap my brain around it. I think I, I would, if I, I need to figure out how it is, what it is to live as the temple of God, it'll require a, a, an understanding that it's right now is beyond me. Of course, Antiochus, in the new power of the temple, he understands it, so he begins to impose Greek worship of the Greek gods in all of Judea. It says in verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand 
Though for some days they will stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So this activity is what triggers what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Again, you need to go back to October 4th and 11th to really unpack that, to get the details, because it's almost a whole sermon, so I'm not going to do it again here. But it is seven years of rough living and brutal fighting, almost always with bad odds. In the end, though, the Jews, and they considered a miracle, overthrew their Greek oppressors. And they had the freedom to govern themselves under Mosaic law. For about 100, from 140 B.C. until 37 B.C., so for about 100 years, the Jewish people experienced self-governance and were able to practice God's Mosaic law as best that they understood it. <clears throat> so I want to end our talk today with another little teachable moment right here. Even as God is going to give victory to his faithful people, and he promises it here, they're going to win. He also communicates that they're going to struggle. And they're going to stumble. And they're going to need help. How fascinating that God would say, no, no, you're going to win. I mean, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going, to, it's going to really stink. Like, there are going to be times when you're going to want to quit. You've got to push through. You've got to keep walking. You've got to keep fighting because you're going to win. That strikes me as fascinating. That God has the, certainly has the power right here to go, and I'm going to make it easy on them. But he doesn't. He says it's going to be tough. Again, one of the reasons I trust the Scripture is because there's not some easy, simple answer. Oh, well, you sinned? Oh, well, then that, that's why you're suffering. Oh, you're facing hardship? Well, it must be this. Whereas we go, no, listen, it could be because God has you a plan to win, but in the meantime, you're going to be struggling and suffering. In fact, <clears throat> look at this, that language. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. Many shall join themselves with flattery, and some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Fascinating Hebrew words here. Um, they all come back to the same idea of being proven or tested or changed so that it can be what it intends to be. Um, when we say, by the way, when, we, when you see made white like this, don't think ethnicity, that's a because you're talking about Jewish people, anyway. This is talking about wool being made white, cloth being made white. These are all three reference, three different types of, of items that you would purchase that would then be made right. You have metals, like a blacksmith. You have, you have uh, fine metals, like a, a metaller just getting the impurities out. Uh, years ago, years ago, I, I was put in, 15 plus years ago now, I was put in charge of developing, of researching a program out at Pine Cove. And it was supposed to be for training future leaders. And so we decided, a, a good friend, a guy named Robbie Jones and I, were, we were supposed to research. And we had scheduled to go to a bunch of different places to see what do we want to name this, this program? What do we want to name this ministry? So let's, we want to create a good analogy that would make clear what it was. We had a numerous one scheduled. And the first one was to go out to the Renaissance Fair and meet Charles Adams, who many of you have met, um, who was a blacksmith. And so we, we went out and met with him, just, just Robbie and I. And Robbie's there with the camera and got the mic. And we go out there. And we start asking Charles, like, okay, just teach us about blacksmithing. Like, just, what, what's the deal? And from the first line out of his mouth, well, you know, the atmosphere is pretty rough today. I didn't, I didn't bring a lighter. Have you got a lighter? Because if you don't have the right atmosphere, you can't get a fire started here. And I said, did you get that? Robbie, did you video that part? Say that again, Charles. Without the right atmosphere, you, you really can't create the right kind of fire for changing the metal. Good. Keep talking. Oh, you know, some of the, he got really mad at one point. What well, man, I mean, he starts actually, I mean, it's Charles. He starts cussing and stuff, and he's mad, and he's like, 
And he goes, man, and he starts smashing away at the bellows. And I'm like, what, dude, what is up? And he's like, oh, man, the impurities, they've melted down in there. And now these impurities have cut off the oxygen supply to the fire. And the fire is going to go out if I don't get rid of these impurities. And I'm like, did you get that? Did you tell me you got that? And he goes, oh, and then later he's, he's, he's talking about like, oh, my gosh, come look at this metal, Chris. And he pulls me up. He's like, watch this. It's, it's heated up. He goes, watch when I hit it. And he hits it. And he goes, did you see how it went this direction? He goes, you'd think when you hit it, it would do this, but it doesn't. It goes the other way. That's called fleeing the hammer. Did you know the metal did that? That it actually tries to run from the hammer? I was like, Robbie, did you get that? One thing after another, this was this picture, and this is the exact picture being described here in this passage, is that, listen, there are times when you're going to stumble, and sometimes when we face trials and temptations and whatever, we think, man, God's out to get me. God, where have you gone? And sometimes God is saying, oh, I'm right here. Believe me. See, think about this idea. When we think about trials and tribulations, very often we look to James 1 to guide us with, what do we do when we face trials and tribulations? Well, we can rejoice in it. Why? Next section, because if in the midst of trials and tribulations we ask for wisdom, God will give us wisdom. He's happy to give us wisdom. How? In faith. If we ask, believing that God has something to teach us in this, we can learn. If we will learn when we face hardships to say, God, what do you have for me? What are you trying to teach me? We always go, what are you trying to teach them? What are you trying to teach me in this? What do you want me to learn in this? I'm asking for wisdom that you promised to give when I ask in faith, because I believe you have something for me. That's the difference between just experience and wisdom. You can have the exact same experience and learn nothing. How many old experienced fools do you know? A lot of them. You'd think wisdom would come with age, but it's not, that's not how it works. It may, it may not. It depends on whether or not you're looking to learn from God to see the way He sees. And that's what's being called for here, that we would learn to see as He sees. The first service afterwards, somebody told me I never did say the name of the program. It's called The Forge, by the way. Um, so that's the name of the program because that's what we all live in. Keep in mind, when we face hardships, it may be trials, it may be tribulations, It may just be discipline. We may face trials and tribulations because of our lack of faith, but we face discipline because of our faith. God loves us enough to discipline us. And so though we may be scared to do it, we should ask Him to continue to love us enough to discipline us. So that's what we'll do. Stand if you will. God, when we read about and hear about the hardships that your people have faced throughout time, whether the Jewish people who the amount of tribulation and trial that they've faced almost as proof of the miracle of you choosing them, as awful as it has been for them. Father, I pray that you will continue to discipline and mold and shape your people. I thank you that we get to be part of your people. Even though it may mean we face different types of discipline and trials and tribulation, we have a world that hates us and therefore wants to destroy us. And we have a Father in you who loves us and therefore you want to discipline us. And I pray that we will take as discipline whatever we face. God, we ask for your discipline upon us. Not because we love discipline and not because that doesn't make us nervous, but because we trust you. We trust you to know what we need and we trust you to guide us through it. And we ask that you would continue to do so. Lord, we know you are faithful even when we're not. And so even as I think about the Maccabees starving and defeated over and over and and facing the challenges and hardships, as I think about people throughout history and Christians even alive today dying in droves for the cause of your gospel, Lord. Sitting in prisons cold and hungry and starving for the cause of your gospel. 
I pray we would have that same mindset of being able to live that out in our lives, that we would seek what you have for us today. God, help us to ask with whatever hardships we face, when we face them, what are you trying to teach me? How do I need to be conformed to the image of your Son? And I pray you would guide us in that as only your Spirit can, who dwells in us, who have accepted the free gift of being no longer orphans but your children. Help us to live according to the idea of being temples. Thank you, Father. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.